For the last two weeks, we have looked carefully at 1 Peter 3.18, which is a great gospel text. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Today, we come to a very difficult section in Peter's epistle, verses 19 through 21, in which we find two challenging issues. Number one, Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison in verses 19 and 20. And number two, baptism, which now saves us in verse 21. Nearly all Bible commentators agree that this is one of the most difficult sections in all the New Testament. In fact, even the venerable Martin Luther declared his inability to understand This passage, and that's saying a lot because he was very dogmatic and thought he understood passages that probably he didn't understand all that well. Now we're going to examine the first of these two today and then, Lord willing, take up the second one next week. And because of the nature of this text, I'm going to have to approach it in a very analytical way. And so we're going to see, number one, questions that are raised, number two, some common answers that are given. Number three, a careful analysis of the text. Fourth, summary and interpretation. And finally, some lessons to draw therefrom. Well, there are a number of questions that are raised from our text today. And our text, I remind you again, is verses 19 and 20, which says, By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine longsuffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Some of the questions, the most prominent questions that are raised by this text are, number one, where did Jesus go? According to this text, where did Jesus go? Did he go to hell or to some other place? Number two, when did Jesus go? Did he go between his death and before his resurrection? Did he go after his resurrection? Did he go in the days of Noah or at some other time? Question number three, to whom did Jesus preach? Did Jesus preach to the spirits of men imprisoned in hell? Did he preach to fallen angels who have disobeyed and sinned against God? And question number four, what did Jesus say to whoever he preached, wherever he went, whenever he went? What did he say? Did he preach the gospel? Did he announce judgment? Did he declare victory? All right, here's some of the questions that are raised by the text. And now you know why it's a difficult text if you didn't know before. Now here are some of the common answers. And probably the most common one is the interpretation that Jesus descended into hell. In fact, that is the exact language of the Apostles' Creed, which is quoted by many believers in church every Sunday, that Jesus descended into hell. And the popular understanding of that phrase is that Jesus went to hell, the abode of departed and wicked spirits, after his death upon the cross and before his resurrection from the grave. He went to hell, the abode of spirits of wicked and unbelieving men, or and or the abode of evil spirits, fallen angels, and demons. And there he proclaimed something, and again, depending upon 
who you think he proclaimed it to, that will determine what you think he proclaimed. Some believe that he proclaimed the gospel to the spirits of men who are now, at that time, in hell. In other words, he preached the gospel to men and gave them a second chance. Let's rule that one out right away. I think the Bible is abundantly clear that there is no second chance for salvation once a person has died. Remember what Jesus said in the account of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16:26. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And of course, we all know that the book of Hebrews says, and it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So there is no second chance of salvation once a person has died. Some believe that Jesus descended into hell to preach to the demons, to preach, and again, two possibilities. Some even believe that he might have preached some kind of gospel to the demons, the fallen angels. But again, that's impossible because it contradicts Scripture. Uh, Hebrews 2.16 is very clear when it says, For indeed, he that is Jesus does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. He does not give aid to angels. Christ did not die to save fallen angels. There is no Savior for fallen angels. There is no rescue for fallen angels. There is no reprieve for those angels, those spirit beings that rebelled against God. So he could not have preached the gospel or any kind of gospel to the angels. But, of course, it is possible that he preached some kind of victory or triumph, announcing that to them. That is a very real possibility. Now, the idea that Jesus descended into hell seems to satisfy several concerns that people sometimes have. The question that we sometimes consider, where did Jesus go after he died before he was resurrected? Where did his spirit go? Well, to think that he, in his spirit, descended into hell is one way to answer that question. It also, thereby, causes us to believe that Jesus actually suffered in hell, which would seem, therefore, to fit into his role as a substitute, taking our sin, our judgment, our punishment upon himself, and since included in our punishment, if we do not repent and trust in Christ, is eternity in hell, it would seem therefore fitting that Christ himself would go to hell, though it does not fully satisfy that, because of course he only goes, if that is correct, and I don't think it is, but if he does go there, he only goes there very briefly for a very limited amount of time. Uh, three days at the very longest. And so that really doesn't satisfy this desire to place Jesus in hell. And I think it causes us to realize that that was not involved in what Christ did in paying for our sins. The reason that wicked, unrepentant men are banished to hell is because they are banished out of the presence of God and they are separated from him in hell. But Christ fully satisfied the just judgment of God for sin on the cross when he yielded up his spirit. And just before that, he cried, it is finished. And that tells us that all 
the punishment for sin had been satisfied. At that point, he didn't have to do anything else to satisfy divine justice. But some find that satisfying to think that he went to hell and therefore bore our hell. And then there are some who believe that this answers the the question, the puzzle that bothers them about what about justice to those who have never heard of Christ, who have died never hearing of Christ, who have died unevangelized. Wouldn't it therefore seem fitting that Christ would go to them and preach the gospel and give them not really so much a second chance, but a, a first chance to hear the gospel and be saved? But that kind of supposition ignores the clear teaching of Romans 1 and 2 that tells us that men, all of them, whether they've ever heard of Christ or not, have sinned against divine light, have sinned against much truth that God has given to all men about himself and about his required righteousness, and all men have willfully and deliberately suppressed that knowledge and pushed it away. And so there is no necessity that men hear about Christ in order to be justly judged because of their sins and because of their rejection of the truth about God. Well, that's one and probably the most popular interpretation of this verse, that Jesus descended into hell and did any one of these variety of things. Another interpretation is that Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, preached through Noah to the wicked men of Noah's day. That actually is a position that is taken by Wayne Grudem, a commentator that I respect highly and study carefully. And though I do not agree with him on this particular interpretation, uh, it does require careful thought because of his analysis of this section. But the idea is that in the days of Noah, Jesus Christ, in the person of the Holy Spirit, empowered Noah in his preaching to the men of his day who were living at that time but are now spirits in prison. Having having rejected the message of Noah, they have died and they are now spirits in hell. But at that time, Christ preached to them as Christ preaches through all of his divinely called preachers and empowers all of his divinely empowered preachers by his Holy Spirit. And then a less common variation on that interpretation is that Christ in the first century and beyond, even into our day, uh, preaches, preached then and preaches even now through the apostles and preachers by his Holy Spirit today to men who are imprisoned by sin and many of whom will be spirits in hell someday. Well, these are some of the common interpretations, all of which I reject. I haven't given you my interpretation yet, but I will do so as I work through that. And now we take up a careful analysis of the text, words and phrases that I think bear special attention. And the first one is the question, what does the phrase by whom mean that opens our text? Verse 19 says, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. What does by whom mean? In my Bible, it seems to mean the Holy Spirit and would lend credence to one of the interpretations I just gave. Backing up to verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, presumably 
by the Holy Spirit, verse 19, by whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And if that is an accurate translation, then of course the by whom does mean that Christ did something by the power of or in the person of the Holy Spirit. But is that what this means? That is what the King James translators took it to mean, the New King James translators likewise, and even the translators of the New International Version. I think they use the phrase through whom, but it still carries the same idea, linking it back to the Holy Spirit of God in verse 18. However, if you were here last Sunday, you remember that I don't accept the interpretation that verse 18 is talking about the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that's the correct interpretation or even the correct translation at all. I do not believe that Jesus Christ was made alive by the Spirit. That, that, that is what Peter is saying. Though actually there are other texts that say he was resurrected by the power of the Spirit. Others that say he was resurrected by the power of the Father. And some that even say that he was resurrected by his own power. So any one of the three members of the triune Godhead can be ascribed the work of the resurrection, but I don't think that's what this text is saying at all. And if you remember, I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you remember, I told you that I'm quite convinced that what this is saying is he was put to death in the realm of the flesh, but was raised again in the realm of the spirit, in the realm of things spiritual. And it was by means of the resurrection that he that he was transferred back from the realm of the flesh into the realm of the spirit from which he first transferred when he became incarnate. Christ transferred from the realm of the spirit to the realm of the flesh in the incarnation. Christ transferred back from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit by the resurrection. When he raised from the dead, he was raised in a spiritual body. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there are bodies terrestrial, earthly, and bodies celestial. And bodies terrestrial, that is earthly, cannot inherit heaven. They cannot enter into the spiritual realm. But bodies celestial, which are bodies, tangible corporal bodies, but are spiritual bodies because they are, they are constituted capable of entering into the spiritual realm, are the kind of bodies that we must have if we're going to have bodies in heaven. And that's why we will one day be raised again with glorified bodies like Christ had. And so Christ was put to death in the realm of the flesh. But when he arose, he was transferred into the realm of the spirit. And then that has bearing upon the interpretation, the translation actually of verse 19, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison. In which, and either one of those translations is equally possible linguistically. You can't prove it by the Greek. It could be translated by whom, or through whom, or can be translated in which. So you can't solve it by an appeal to the Greek. You Solve it by what you think is the proper interpretation of verse 18. And when you've decided upon that, then that will direct your, your uh, translation of verse 19. But I think it is talking about the realm of the Spirit. 
So he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in the realm of things spiritual, in which condition, in which state, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now you recognize that also tells us something about the time of when this took place. It did not, therefore, take place between his death and resurrection. This is not something that he did after he died, but before he was raised from the dead. This is something he did immediately after his resurrection from the dead. Because it was in that state that he went and preached to the spirits who are in prison. So, it's very important that we come to some conclusion as to what this initial phrase means and even how it ought to be translated. Secondly, the question is, who are the spirits in prison? In which state, also, Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. Spirits. The Greek word pneuma can be used both of human spirits and of angels, both holy angels as well as fallen angels. But, as some commentators have pointed out, in the New Testament, it is always used of angels unless it is further qualified to make it clear that it's talking about men. As, for example, in the phrase, the spirits of just men made perfect. There you know that it's talking about the spirits of men. But in all places where it is used without qualification, it turns out to be talking about angelic beings. Furthermore, the concept of prison, or even the term prison, is never used in the Bible of men. Hell could be called a prison, but the Bible doesn't seem to call it one. But the Bible does talk about fallen angels being in prison. For example, in Revelation 20, verse 7, we read, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Satan was imprisoned, or will be imprisoned, for a period of time. He, of course, is the highest-ranking fallen angel. So, spirit seems to point to angelic beings, not human beings. Prison seems to point to angelic beings, not human beings. This phrase, who formerly were disobedient, talks about a willful rebellion of some kind. And furthermore, we are told that this particular rebellion that Peter has in mind took place in the days of Noah. It does link us back to Noah. In which state also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, verse 20, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. In the days of Noah. Now that causes us to consider carefully the opening words of Genesis chapter 6. And I will read verses 1 through 4. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, 
yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now, that introduces another passage that is puzzling. But they may link together. They almost seem like they do. And this may provide the explanation. That particular text in Genesis 6-1 seems to be what Jude is referring to. In Jude verse 6 when he says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode... He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And Peter in 2 Peter says something similar in chapter 2 and verse 4 when he says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now, to link Genesis 6, 1 through 4 to those texts in 2 Peter and Jude, of course, assumes that the sons of God in Genesis 6 were in fact angels. Is that presuming too much? Not everybody agrees with that. Some think that the sons of God were the godly line of Seth as opposed to the ungodly line of Abel. And some defend their positions very strongly. I actually candidated at a church in Arizona back in the early months of 1973 that in a very small community that had split, and there was now two Baptist churches in this very small town, and they had split over the fact that the teacher of the adult Sunday school class, there was only one, took one position. He taught that the sons of God were men or angels. I forget which position who took which. And the pastor took the other position, and they split over that. I think there must have been some other issues underlying all of that. But they split over that, and so though they didn't bear these names, what you had in effect was the uh, Sons of God Men Baptist Church and the Sons of God Angels Baptist Church in that little town, which seemed very amusing to me now, but it didn't seem amusing to me at the time. But the fact of the matter is, that the phrase sons of God is always used of angels in the Old Testament. And I'll give you a couple of citations from the book of Job. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Or chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And you have another reference later in Job, Job 38.7, that I'll not take time to read now. And you even have a reference that is similar, not identical, but we'll get to the definition of sons of God in the genealogy of Christ in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. And here you have the genealogy traced back, and each one is the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. Uh, Verse 37, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jerob, the son of Mahalahel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, Adam is the only man 
that is called a son of God, except for, in the New Testament sense, of believers who are made sons of God by the new birth and by adoption into the family of God. But other than that, the only ones who are called sons of God in the Bible are either Adam or angels. Now, what is the common thread between Adam and angels? Well, Adam and angels were created directly by God. All other men are the product of conception and human birth, procreation. So when you're doing a genealogy, you trace each man back to his father until you get to Adam. Adam has no human father. He's not the son of so-and-so. He's the son of God. He wasn't born. He was created. All the angels likewise weren't born. They were all created by the direct hand of God. Therefore, it seems, I think, necessary to interpret the phrase sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 as those who are created by the direct hand of God. In this case, since it can't be Adam, it has to be angels, that is fallen angels, demons. Now the details as to exactly what these demons did in in Genesis chapter 6 is still a bit puzzling and I wouldn't want to be too dogmatic about it. But it has something to do with the procreation of men and, and women upon the earth who were exceedingly wicked and exceedingly fierce. The progeny of whatever it was they did are called giants. A word in the Hebrew that does have some reference to larger than usual size, but really has more to do with their fierceness, their violence, their wicked violence. And probably the sin that is most referred to in leading up to the flood, in Genesis chapter 6 is the is the uh, introduction to the flood. And this account that I just read about the sons of God going into the daughters of men seems to be the final straw that broke the camel's back and brought on the flood. The judgment of God in the flood upon the wickedness of the world was finally brought to its culmination by this act. And the sin that seems to be most emphasized above everything else is the violence that was in the land. caused by the progeny of these angels who, and there's various ways to interpret what they did, probably the most um, least problematic way is to think in terms of demon-possessed men. These angels possessed men, demon-possessed men who took wives and produced these fierce men who were almost demon-like in their violence and fierceness and wickedness, And that, in the passing of some time, brought on the flood. That's when God declared his judgment of the flood upon the world and called Noah to begin to prepare the ark and to begin to warn men about the flood. It's also interesting that in 2 Peter 2.4, the word for hell there is different. 2 Peter 2.4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and the Greek word there is Tartarus, a word that is not normally used for hell. seems to be a different place than our regular hell. Cast them down to Tartarus and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And there are other indications in the Bible that there are demons who are confined in 
a hell-like place rather than being allowed to operate freely. There are demons who are operating freely, but there are apparently demons who are confined. Now we read, for example, in Revelation 9.1, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key of the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power, and on it goes. And it would appear that what you have here in Revelation chapter 9 is a release of some of the more fierce demons who have been in confinement all of this time, and they are allowed for a brief period of time to inflict their violence upon the earth. doesn't mean necessarily that all of the demons that were in the pit, probably Tartarus, were released at this time, but some of them were. So putting all that together, it seems to me that the most likely understanding is that Christ went to a hell, maybe a part of hell or a hell, that was prepared to confine the most wicked, the most fierce demons, to keep them from operating upon the earth, They were confined at the time of the flood, no longer allowed to operate upon the earth after the flood, or else, undoubtedly, the world would have become just as wicked as it did before the flood and would need to be destroyed again. And that they are confined in a place called Tartarus, and that Christ went and preached to them. Now that brings me to my next question, which is, what does the word preach indicate? The Greek word is keruxo. It means to proclaim as a herald, to publicly proclaim, to publicly announce something. It is often used of the preaching of the gospel, but not always. It's also used of other proclamations that take on this nature of public proclamation. And the content of the message always depends upon the context. Some have assumed that Christ preached the gospel because this word preach is associated many times in the Bible with the preaching of the gospel or preaching of God's word. But there's no reason to postulate gospel proclamation at this point. It simply tells us that Christ went to Tartarus, or went to, Peter tells us Tartarus, I assume that's what it's telling us here. He went and preached to the spirits in prison, and he announced something to them. He openly and publicly announced something to them, the content of which we do not know. But I think it's important to understand that Peter did not choose the Greek word euangelizo, which would, which is always used of the preaching of the gospel. Another word for preach, another Greek word for preach, but it always means the preaching of the gospel. Euangelizo means the preaching of good news. That's where we get our word evangelize. Euangelizo, evangelize. To proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the glad tidings, to proclaim the good news. But that's not the word that Peter used, he used the word keruxo to proclaim publicly as a herald. Now, a couple more questions before we're done with our analysis. What does the word went indicate? By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And that word indicates a change of location, a purposeful journey. He went somewhere. It seems like he went somewhere out of the way. 
You know, where would he have normally gone from the resurrection uh, going back to heaven? Straight to heaven. But he had something to do before he got to heaven. And it took, it required that he go someplace else. Someplace that was not the direct route from earth to heaven, from the grave to heaven. And so the word went, I think, indicates that. And then that word also is also a significant term. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Also, which means in addition to. And that would indicate in addition to his resurrection. That's what the preceding phrase talked about was his resurrection. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the realm of the Spirit. That's his resurrection. In which realm or in which state he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. In other words, in addition to the reconciliation of believers to the Father, which took place after his resurrection and required his resurrection. Verse 18 is a great gospel text that talks about Christ reconciling sinners to God. By his death and resurrection, he reconciled us to God. He brought us to the Father. And his resurrection was necessary to complete that work and then for him to bring us to the Father. But in addition to that, which is the main focus, at least as far as we are concerned and as far as the revelations given to us in the Bible is concerned, that's the main focus of what Christ accomplished in his death. He accomplished the redemption of his people. And after his resurrection... He, that accomplishment was now final, and he reconciled his people to God, but he did something else at that time as well. He also went and preached to the spirits which are in prison. And that also implies sequence. And it indicates a time frame that is connected to, but subsequent to his resurrection. So I think this pretty much answers the questions that we had before. What does by whom mean? It means in which state, in which condition. Who are the spirits in prison? I think they are demons, fallen spirits, who are contained by God. What does preached indicate? It it indicates a public announcement by Jesus Christ. Um, I'm back to my analysis again. What were my original questions? Where did Jesus go? He went to Tartarus. When did he go? After his resurrection. To whom did Jesus preach? To fallen angels. Probably the sons of God of Genesis chapter 6. What did he say? He announced judgment and declared victory. I think that brings us to the final part of what we're talking about here. So to summarize and to give my interpretation, which I've pretty much already given... (laughs) But to summarize, I think we would have to to believe, and this, of course, is, is supposition, but you tell me if you think it's valid or not. I think we'd have to believe that Satan and the demons were undoubtedly celebrating the triumph of Christ's death on the cross. They thought they'd won. They thought they'd had victory. They thought they'd triumphed. That's what Satan's been trying to do ever since the garden. 
is to thwart God's plan, to triumph over God, to triumph over Christ, to usurp God's place and power and glory, to spoil his work. That's what he's been doing. And Satan thought that he had finally gained his purpose when he thought he had maneuvered to have Christ crucified. And in fact, he did. But he was just the unwilling servant of Jehovah carrying out God's plan. He had no idea what God was doing in all of that. And I think, therefore, it's very suitable that after his resurrection, Christ goes to the place where the demons had been celebrating. And he says, your celebration is premature. You didn't win. I did. You didn't triumph, I did. It's not your victory, it's my victory. And so what we have is a proclamation of victory and judgment by the resurrected Christ to imprisoned fallen angels, announcing their ultimate defeat in Christ's triumph over sin, death, and hell, and his redemption of his people. Remember the fourth stanza of that great hymn, He Was Wounded for Our Transgressions? Who can number his generation? Who shall declare all the triumphs of his cross? There are a lot of triumphs in his cross, some that we don't even think about. Who shall declare all the triumphs of his cross? Well, we have the privilege of declaring many of them as his redeemed children upon the earth, but there's some that we are not qualified to tell about, to declare. And this is one of them. Christ himself had to go to Tartarus and to declare the triumph of his cross over the demons who were there. And I think that's what Peter's referring to. Well, what are some of the lessons that we should take away from this very challenging, intriguing text? Well, the first one is a sober reality of spiritual warfare that we sometimes don't keep in mind because it is unseen, but it is very real. And it is bigger and more dangerous than we realize. And that's why we need the whole armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6. Why? Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Don't forget that. That's why we need to be alert. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith. If you don't, if you're not alert, if you're not aware, and if you're not resisting him steadfastly in the faith, that is in the faith once delivered to the saints, basically resisting him in the truth of God's word, then you are going to be wounded. He is very vigilant. He is restless. He doesn't give up. We do. He doesn't coast. We do. He's always looking for a chance to exploit our weaknesses. And we sometimes are very careless concerning our weaknesses. And if we're not very vigilant and sober and watchful, then we are going to be damaged by our adversary, the devil, and his demons who do his bidding. However, to counterbalance that warning, just remember, Satan is a defeated foe. Satan is a defeated foe. And really what we have are his, his um, death throes. I'll never forget when I was a boy watching the uncle of my across-the-street neighbor 
wring the neck of a chicken. I'd never seen that done before. He picked up a chicken and he wrung it like this and he wrung his head off. And that chicken jumped around in the yard with his head gone for I don't know how long. It was, it was something I'd never seen before. That was uncanny. But that's the way they do. Uh, that chicken was a defeated foe. <laughs> that chicken was a dead, a dead duck, to, to mix my metaphors here. But he hadn't stopped jumping yet. And if he'd have run into you, he might even have done some damage at that point. Satan's a defeated foe. But he hasn't been completely um, incapacitated yet. And he's still doing damage. And so he's a dangerous enemy. We've got to be aware of that. And this passage would remind us of that. This passage also reminds us of the long-suffering of God. That, of course, is in verse 20. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. How long-suffering and patient is God in spite of the exceeding wickedness that, that exceeds all wickedness that we have in the world today. We think the world is wicked today, and it is. But I assure you from the testimony of the Scriptures The world before the flood was even more wicked than our world today. It was exceedingly wicked. It was wicked beyond our imagination. And God, therefore, pronounced judgment upon the world, and he eventually carried out his judgment upon the world. But notice how long-suffering he was, even in the face of such wickedness, before he brought his judgment to bear. He gave time for many warnings to be given. He gave time for many opportunities to be extended for other people to enter the ark besides Noah and his family. And yet all these exhortations were ignored because, no doubt, the people of that age came to the conclusion that there would be no judgment, that Noah was crazy, that his message was, was, uh, was idiotic, and that there was no reason to pay any attention to it. But that didn't stop the judgment. The fact that The human opinion, the majority opinion, nearly everybody, everybody I know who is somebody, all the intelligent people, all the, all the important people, everybody I know agrees that there's nothing to it. And then the day came when Noah went on the ark and God shut the door and the rain began to fall. I can imagine that there were some people up there pounding on the ark, screaming to be admitted, but it was too late then. Dear friends, God's judgment is certain, and it's not to be trifled with. The fact that it hasn't happened is only testimony to the goodness of God, his long-suffering, his patience. Some people take it as testimony that all the warnings can be ignored, that this message is invalid. You've learned the wrong lesson from the delay. The delay is that God is exceedingly kind, exceedingly merciful, exceedingly loving, exceedingly patient. He is extending more and more opportunities like he did to Israel over the generations and sending them prophet after prophet after prophet, which they ignored and abused and rejected until finally judgment fell upon them. And likewise in the days of Noah, and likewise in our day, there will be an awful judgment that no one will be able to withstand. It will bring about your utter destruction. There's only one way of salvation, That's through Christ. 
through coming to Him in repentance and faith, through believing the gospel and embracing that, through making Christ the object of your heart's affection, you must go to God. You must acknowledge your need. You must beg Him for a heart of faith and repentance and of love toward Christ, or else you will be judged in the most severe judgment imaginable. Don't presume upon the patience and long-suffering of God. Judgment delayed does not mean judgment is not coming. It came in Noah's day. It will come in our day. Are you ready? Are you in Christ? I hope you are. Shall we pray? Father, may your word today speak to every heart and especially to those who are toying with sin and delaying their response to Christ. To those who have dismissed the warnings of your word and have presumed upon your love and your kindness and have misinterpreted it. Oh Lord, may this message drive home to them the need to be serious about their soul's welfare, to be serious about their eternal destiny. And Father, may your children take great comfort today in the triumphs of the cross, the victory, the great victory that Christ won, not over, not only over death and sin, thank God for that, but also over hell, over Satan, over all of the forces of evil. Thank God for that as well. In Jesus' name, amen.